0: Before we begin, please note that none of the information in this episode constitutes a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Future Proof, digital assets for the modern financial advisor. I'm Jonathan Bronstein with Financial Advisor IQ, And as always, we are brought to you by Galaxy Fund Management. This is our fifth episode of Future Proof. And as loyal listeners know, we do like to sprinkle in listener questions from time to time. Well, today that sprinkle is a downpour. My guest is Steve Kurtz, the Head of Asset Management at Galaxy Digital, and our focus is entirely on your listener questions. Steve, are you ready?
1: I'm ready to go, thanks a lot, Jonathan.
0: All right, let's get to it. We have 20 minutes on the clock, Steve. The past few weeks have been exciting for Bit- for Bitcoin watchers. The uh, The price has run up more than 25%. So what's going on?
1: Well, it's a continuation, I think, of of a lot of the, the concepts that we've talked about that are starting to take hold with the world more broadly. So we've talked in the past about the infrastructure of Bitcoin being laid down. We've talked about Tudor uh, coming into the market in May. And then what you've seen in the last couple of weeks in particular around Bitcoin is a real decoupling of hard assets, including Bitcoin, from the U.S. dollar. So if you look from, call it the the 20th of July through the end of the month, you saw gold trade up, you saw silver trade up, and you saw Bitcoin trade up at the same time that you saw the value of the dollar weakening. And I think that macro story is probably the biggest single driver of Bitcoin prices. In other words, people are aware now, keenly aware of the money that has been spent fighting COVID, Um, they are increasingly focused on the money that will be spent uh, fighting COVID. Um, Goldman estimates another $1 trillion uh, of of fiscal spending between now and year end. The ECB has its own 750 billion euro uh, package and that's not even counting the monetary response. So from a macro perspective, that story is starting to take hold and people are looking to protect their portfolios. And then when you flip to the, maybe the more positive and exciting side of the Bitcoin story, in the last few weeks, you've seen the news that PayPal and Venmo are rolling out direct sales of cryptocurrencies, that's 325 million um, users. Uh, you see Coinbase adding another five million clients to their business since the start of the year. And uh, you, know, you see partnerships like the partnership that Galaxy has with Case now going live and bringing um, access and education for Bitcoin to advisors. And th- those are all uh, really um, practical uh, market texture-oriented developments that I think are supporting the move higher for Bitcoin. And
0: the uh, it, it was recently announced by the OCC that national banks are are cleared to custody Bitcoin. So so how significant is that news? It, it seemed that uh, you know a lot of the jumps seemed to come you know right around uh, right around when that announcement happened.
1: It's a great point. Um, I think the one of the big questions has been regulatory and i think uh part of it is bitcoin is a different asset we've never seen an asset like this and part of it is just the reality that there's an alphabet soup of regulatory bodies even putting bitcoin aside in the us and so in the past we would say how great is it that uh you know the new york dfs allows custody of bitcoin in a regulated way with fidelity and ice and the cme has futures and uh, you know, So it's been very clear to the market that Bitcoin is not a security. It's been very clear that it's treated like a commodity. You've had these regulatory bodies blessing pieces of this uh, at different levels, including the New York State piece that I mentioned. What was really significant about the OCC is, is number one, the, the federal umbrella, which is important, uh, and the signaling. Um, it, it's sort of destigmatizing to the extent there is any stigma left around Bitcoin. It's destigmatizing. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. It's validating that they're here to stay. And it's an important signal to banks as well, um, which have on some level been uh, looking uh, to regulators um, for more clarity to say, uh, yeah, if you're OCC regulated, you can actually custody cryptocurrencies. And I think that's just part of the centralized federal government of the US waking up to the fact that uh, there's competition in this space. The US really has to compete in the digital arena cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin is a part of that strategy. Uh, let's, let's actually give some clarity around this and start to move the ball forward.
0: Sure. So Steve, um, in the past week, uh, you've seen uh, the, the price of Bitcoin has gone over $12,000 uh, per Bitcoin. So uh, is there still room to run? What, what are we looking at?
1: Yeah, I think, look, as a starting point, Bitcoin is more volatile than other assets. And that's a, we've talked about that in terms of wh- where we are in the life cycle of Bitcoin. I think it's it's always important to contextualize um, in, any market uh, move and, and where it could be headed. You would need to have 60 times or maybe 55 times the price of Bitcoin's move today to equal the same market cap of gold. We've talked in the in the past about Bitcoin's lane as digital gold, as a store of value. And so there's always that, you know, we, we think at Galaxy about that, that proxy. Where are we? It's maybe 100 million Bitcoin users relative to 8 billion people on the planet, uh, 200 and change uh, billion of market cap rel- relative to 9 trillion plus, plus for gold. Um, you know, if you take that anecdotally to our fund, uh, about a quarter of our investors have been making add-on investments. So there's, there's just these bottom-up and then also top-down things that say, no, people are still adding. And, and by the way, Bitcoin's a little different than other assets. The the more adoption there is of Bitcoin, so the higher the price goes, the more the world is accepting of Bitcoin's lane as digital gold, and and it almost gives you more confidence the higher the price goes, because that means uh, that it's becoming a part of the fabric of the global financial system, and and it's effectively de-risking your bet on Bitcoin uh, from a price perspective. Uh, I think we're still very early innings. I think we're very early in the macro story that's driving Bitcoin this inflation concern that's going to take years if not decades to rationalize itself in terms of the debt. Um, only now are we seeing big hedge funds getting involved. That's a $10 trillion market. Only now are we seeing the wealth market, which is a $20 trillion market in the U.S., start to dip its toe into Bitcoin. Uh, and so, yes, there very much is room to run as our sense for all of those reasons.
0: So shifting gears a little bit, because we are looking at our, our audience questions here, um, audience member wants to know, how do you evaluate Bitcoin? Do you have any metrics such as, you know, and the person threw out uh, minor capitulation, um, uh, trading volume, active transactions during certain time horizons, um, take us through that.
1: Sure, um, it's, there's a couple of ways to think about this um, and I'll, I'll go through a few of them. So uh, obviously there is the security of the network, um, and I think that's that's self-evident why that's important to something like Bitcoin, um, which is based on its robust and um, uh, distributed network. And so the simplest metric, if you want to look at uh, the security of the Bitcoin network from the comfort of your own home or your mobile device, is called the hash rate. And to really dumb it down, because uh, you know I, I'd love to go deeper, but uh, we, we we have only a few minutes. The higher the hash rate, the more secure the Bitcoin blockchain is. And essentially what you're really solving for here and looking at this hash rate metric is how much computing power would it take for a theoretical negative actor to stage a 51% attack on the network and alter the functionality of the network. Bitcoin's great because its network has never been hacked. It's great because there's no centralized authority. And so there's always this question of what is the security of that that lives around the entire Bitcoin blockchain. And by that metric, we're at nearly an all time high. Uh, of around 125, 126 hash per second. Um, you can go to blockchain.com slash charts. I think it's a great resource and you can click on um, total hash rate and track that yourself. There's also an, a number of great uh, additional resources on blockchain.com um, that are available uh, that we like to follow at, at Galaxy. Um, I think you can also look at the decentralization of the network. Uh, again, the more decentralized the network, the stronger and more robust, the more resilient the network is. Uh, by that metric, we're at around 800,000 wallet addresses that are now holding at least one Bitcoin. So that's a very powerful metric that's quite different from where we were um, in the in the past. Um, so that's on the, the network and security side. On the market structure side, I think obviously you want to be looking at liquidity. Uh, and this is going to rhyme more with what you've seen in, in other asset classes. You want to be looking at things like, what are the futures volumes? So in Bitcoin, uh, we talked about regulated futures uh, coming on board through ICE and through the CME, which are obviously the two big players in traditional world, uh, in May you reached 429 billion uh, futures volumes. That was up 49.7 percent month on month, or something like that. Um, you also have um, in May around 120 billion of spot trading volumes in Bitcoin and just shy of 4 billion in options volumes. So that's um, that's very different. I think it's the numbers speak for themselves in terms of uh, you know a market that's gaining steam and, and, and having more robust. Uh, activity in general, which is is a sign of a healthy market. And I think the other piece, which is not really a metrics-driven evaluation of Bitcoin is obviously regulatory clarity. And I think banks are now uh, allowed to custody it, and that's rapidly giving you clarity on how you treat uh, Bitcoin. Um, What's not changing is the technology. Uh, Bitcoin hasn't had a change in three years, we don't foresee any major changes coming. And that's why Bitcoin is such an interesting place to start, because the the foundation is already built and then how it plugs in is where all of the activity and access points and uh, comfort that's being developed are helping to drive the price forward and also the broader understanding of how to put it into a portfolio.
0: So following up with another listener question, um, have the the regulatory and oversight structures evolved to the point that fraud and, and disappearance of account assets are just Not really serious threats anymore.
1: Well, in some level, uh, you know, you have to think about Bitcoin as a tale of two markets. There is a there is an increasingly more important and larger market size that is the regulated market that's primarily being driven outside of the United, sorry, within the United States, and then there are you know pockets of uh, what I would call the other path, uh, like in uh, you know certain exchanges in Asia where. Uh, there's still a lot of um, you know potential for uh, leverage and, and and all kinds of things that aren't aren't great. So I think if you are being thoughtful about how you access Bitcoin, and that's what we try to talk about so much. If you're if you're using a professional partner as you think about custody for your own personal or for your institution's uh, Bitcoin, the disappearance of assets and accounts is not an issue. It's off the table. Um, so I think you're supposed to do your work on who are you partnering with. To access Bitcoin and subject to that work, you're fine because these regulatory rails and these professional partners are in place and are much stronger than they were years ago. Um, As it relates to exchanges, in the U.S., crypto exchanges are regulated just like normal exchanges. And so, the U.S. is particularly cautious here and it's low risk uh, within the context of U.S. regulated crypto exchanges, again, very different than other parts of the world. So, pick your jurisdiction, pick your partners carefully, and there's a really nice framework, uh, and and it's really not a consideration to have things like fraud or or disappearance of assets anymore.
0: Just following up on that, if I'm a financial advisor and and I'm hearing you you know, describing the these this tale of two markets, and you know if I'm an FA and I'm in the United States, my clients are in the United States, I'm in that more regulated market that you describe as being, you know, a bit more reliable. I would say, um, is there is there reason to be concerned that what could happen in that other market would ultimately affect you, even though your account is safe, but maybe the value of your of your assets wouldn't be?
1: It's a really important question, and I think you hit on it at the end of the question. the The answer is it, it is it is not going to affect the disappearance or fraud for sure. In other words, your Bitcoin or your Bitcoin, if you if you invested in Galaxy's Bitcoin fund, they would be stored at Fidelity or at ICE. You would have you know, an, an auditor called Deloitte, you would have tax done by e and y. You would get your statements. It would be treated just like any other asset. and so from a from a provenance of what you own and and integrity of that system, that's very robust, as well as the regulatory framework around it. Um, I, I think it it would be disingenuous to say that the other market doesn't affect its price. Of course, it does. And I think that's why. That's why Bitcoin needs to be sized appropriately. That's why it needs to be explained, uh, and that's why there's some volatility to the underlying. Uh, you, you do have liquidations out of the Asian exchanges that can make for a bumpy ride here or there within Bitcoin. We think that's why FA should be telling clients you are not supposed to be trading in this. You're supposed to essentially put a, a, a buy and hold position, like you would for a growth stock and not look at it for three, four, five years. You could look at it, but you know what I mean, don't, don't try to get too active around the position, uh, because over time, what you're really saying is, we believe that this regulated market that's uh, continuing to pick up steam, and I talked about trading volumes and institutions and the wealth market, we think that's going to continue to grow um, for all the reasons that we've talked about in prior podcasts. We think that uh, those things that uh, are causing volatility uh, and, and, and maybe don't make that much sense, are probably either going to go away or or certainly be a much smaller percentage of the overall market activity over time. And that's why volatility can come down. And that's why you can take comfort in, in in putting a position on today.
0: Changing gears, will the value of Bitcoin be solely as a store of value, or do you believe micropayments and access to the unbanked will increase its
1: value? That is a that is a phenomenal question. Um so as a starting point, Bitcoin is, is much more transmissible than gold. Um, so it, it, is, it can serve as a more portable store of value, which kind of puts it in the middle of what you said, which is gold versus micropayments. Um, there are new ways of utilizing Bitcoin because it is more portable. So if you look at Venezuela or any other country that experiences uh, inflation or oppression, that's a that's a tool uh, to to store value, but also to move value. Um, and then I think at a more rudimentary level, the issue with Bitcoin for micropayments is that it's blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain is clunky, but it's secure. And that's a feature, not a bug. That's what Bitcoin blockchain is supposed to do. It's supposed to be clunky and secure. And so as you get to some of the side, uh, you know, the, the, the micropayments, um, you, you really start to think about, are there things being built on top of the Bitcoin blockchain that make it faster if you want to use it for that purpose? Uh, and so what you can do when there's a lot of technology being developed around this, uh, you can take the security of Bitcoin and drop it into a more dynamic ecosystem, whether the Lightning Network, you might have heard of that. Uh, we'll see how that develops. Or there's a lot of innovation uh, around the Ethereum blockchain that allows you to bring Bitcoin into the Ethereum uh, ecosystem, uh, which is represented as an ERC-20 token. So those are all really exciting things. They may grow into you know, a, a more micropayment oriented use case for Bitcoin. But you, you also have to remember there's competition there from payments oriented coins like XRP. Uh, you know, you may have heard of that as Ripple uh, and Facebook Libra and other stable coins. So I think the store of value lane is enough uh, to get comfortable with a Bitcoin position. Uh, the payment side is this really fascinating area of tech innovation. Uh, you you, you, you got to pay attention to it. There's a Bitcoin story to it, there's a stable coin story to it, there's an XRP story to it and we'll see how it plays out.
0: Moving on, another listener question. Uh, what is the current atmosphere in the traditional hedge fund world on Bitcoin? Uh, how much do they understand it? And and how do you see that evolving?
1: Sure. Uh, well, first of all, I, I come from this world. Um, I spent most of my career uh, at macro and credit hedge funds. And in addition to the asset management business at Galaxy, which is where our, our Bitcoin and our index fund live, um, Galaxy has a trading desk. And so we've spent much of the past few months doing teach-ins with traditional world hedge funds. Uh, I, I think the, the Tudor letter that was sent out in May and the move by Paul Tudor Jones to come into the market was a watershed, uh, but also not just because of his, um, you know, his standing in the space, but also the thesis that he wrote about the great monetary inflation. What are the tools in the toolkit to combat these Historic numbers, The GDP number last week was horrific. Um, the deficit is higher than it's ever been. The forward deficit looks terrible. You know you, you need to do something about it if you're a macro hedge fund. And certainly Bitcoin is a tool in the toolkit. certainly crypto is. And so what, what, I, what I would say is that the hedge funds are um, becoming more aware. They're getting much savvier, and it's changing rapidly. I don't think it's incremental. You don't go from one hedge fund to five hedge funds to 10 hedge funds at the same pace. What happens is when the dominoes are knocked over and the underlying uh, I- investors in those hedge funds are okay with the document changes that are required, there's really no reason not to incorporate it. And so, they're all getting smart and in different phases of of making those implementations. Um, it's a big reason why we're bullish on on the price of Bitcoin over the next six months.
0: We are getting a little short on time, but there is one more question that I that I wanted to get in because I think it really matters to a lot of our audience. Uh, a listener asked, "Many regional and, and wirehouse FAs can't currently invest in Bitcoin. So when do you predict that they might be able to?"
1: Sure, I think um, there are a couple of reasons why you wouldn't be able to invest in in Bitcoin. The first, you may have a firm wide mandate where it hasn't been blessed yet. And I think in that case, it's about education. And I think in some cases, uh, FAs don't know how to answer their client questions. So if I were an FA, I wouldn't wouldn't fudge it. I probably just wouldn't talk about it. And so education of FAs is is a question. And then there's um, this really interesting, we did a webinar last week, where uh, nine out of 10 um, respondents said that they didn't think that the access points were there yet to even consider it, even though they wanted to, uh, and so access is an issue. And so the reason that we did the deal with with CASE, so Galaxy has a strategic partnership with CASE, um, is that CASE both has built these digitized education modules. So those in your uh, institution can get comfortable with the concepts of blockchain technology and Bitcoin if they're not already there, or an FA who gets a question can be armed to answer those questions. Uh, and then also, um, you know, you can uh, you can look at the access piece, which is, our Bitcoin fund and our crypto index fund, which mirrors the Bloomberg Galaxy crypto index that we, beat, we, we built with Bloomberg, um, can now be invested in very simply through digitized subdocs, all through the case platform. So that's, um, so that's really, uh, that, that's really um, what I would say to that. Uh, look, the, the asset is performing really well. Bitcoin's up 56 percent. The Bloomberg Galaxy crypto index is up 93 percent year to date. There's a reason for that. And I think that um, any of those hurdles that are getting in the way are sort of falling down because of the macro story, because of the track record, because of the access points, uh, all sort of falling down uh, alongside the performance.
0: So you think it is a, uh, a matter of time before, you know, more and more FAs and more and more of, of their home offices are, are recognizing the value and making the adjustments that need to be made?
1: I, I think in, in multiple Polls that we've done directly with with hundreds and hundreds of RAs, we've seen that somewhere between seven out of ten and seventy five percent of FAs have gotten questions about crypto, and so there's a, there's a reason for that, and the clients are asking for it, and there's increasingly no. What are the arguments you can make? The regulatory clarity is there. The products uh, are are dramatically improved. The performance is there. Um, you know, like I said, there's really only an education and an access argument uh, against it, and I think we've solved. Uh, at Galaxy, you know, patting ourselves on the back a little bit, we've worked really hard to solve those two pain points, knowing that they were the pain points uh, that the FA and wealth market in particular would have. And, and as of this week, we're live with Case, and FA and, and their, their institution can access and learn about this. And so I, I do think that the dominoes are falling quite quickly. And as always, uh, client demand has a way of accelerating uh, these kinds of uh, potential hurdles.
0: Steve, thank you so much. We're out of time, but uh, I think we covered a lot of ground, right?
1: I think so. Let's do it again, it was fun. Thanks a lot, (laughs) Justin. Absolutely, my
0: pleasure. Listeners, we will be back in two weeks with Galaxy founder, Mike Novogratz, talking about what the next year could be like for Bitcoin. You will not want to miss that episode. This podcast is a production of Financial Advisor IQ, a service of the Financial Times, and it's brought to you by Galaxy Fund Management. My name is Jonathan Bronstein, and I produced and edited this podcast. Our music is written and performed by Oliver Mack. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.